putting you first and knowing that you are there. And so we just ask that you'll help us, help our volunteers, help the tech, technological side and everything else that goes along with it. And we say this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's take a quick look at this great ministry. Elders, I see a conflict with the Book of Mormon I'd like to discuss. Hopefully we can help clear it up. Let's read 2 Nephi 9:16. And assuredly, as the Lord liveth, for the Lord God hath spoken it, and it is his eternal word, which cannot pass away. Did you notice the conflict in that passage? No, not really. The verse says God's eternal word, which cannot pass away. Okay, where's the conflict? Let's read 1 Nephi 13.26 to see if you notice the apparent conflict or contradiction to what we just read in 2 Nephi. And after they go forth from the hand of the twelve apostles of the Lamb, from the Jews unto the Gentiles, thou seest the formation of the great and abominable church, which is most abominable above all other churches. For behold, they have taken away from the gospel of the Lamb many parts which are plain and most precious, and also many covenants of the Lord have they taken away. The Book of Mormon teaches, on the one hand, plain and precious truths were taken away, but then it also says that God's eternal word cannot pass away. So my question to you is, which passage do you believe? First Nephi or Second Nephi? Obviously you can't believe both to be true, but both are found in the Book of Mormon. I don't know what to say. That does seem to be an apparent contradiction. Oh, this is just one of the many contradictions I've come across in my reading of the Book of Mormon. I hope we can discuss more of them in the near future. I can't wait. Don't forget to tap that subscribe button and hit the bell icon to be notified of our upcoming episodes. Did you know we have a website? Go to TalkingToMormons.com where you can view and read all our articles. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Check out the description below to learn more. Voice artist for that fish. Hey, listen, uh, last week we started a three-part series on the four stances and what they represent relative to doctrine and practice. The three of those stances we said is orthodoxy and then Protestantism and then Restorationism. And, uh, and then we, a uh, much lesser known fourth stance which I'm just calling the fulfillment stance, the fulfillment. So, uh, and then in Orthodoxy, it fills in Roman Catholicism, Greek, Russian, uh, the uh, Church of England, and some other, and Lutherans, and, and, and I guess some other uh, faiths. And then, of course, with Protestantism, you know what those are, any Protestant church, non-denom, denom. And then Restorationism, I threw everything in that pot, that was a woman or a man who came up and said, we're going to start uh, a new way to restore or do it a better way than what has been happening with Orthodoxy and Protestantism. And that includes Mormonism or Seventh-day Adventists or Jehovah's Witnesses or Christadelphians and all of it. So we kind of generalized that way. And I suggested that the three stances, the three major stances are first unnecessary in light of the irrefutable evidence that the Bible uh, has Jesus coming back to them then. And uh, he came back and took his church bride as he promised. Secondly, um, that 
these three major stances are really fugly in the face of the attitude that Jesus and his apostles had toward the things of the world. Uh, Son of man has no place to rest his head. The authority of man that, you know, you now have access, the veil's been written to you, have direct access to God. The, the, the fine clothing that Jesus was always talking about, the Pharisees and the, the power and uh, the, the religion's desire to bring people into captivity instead of seeking to emancipate them from religious bondage. Third, I showed that the claims of authority in apostolic succession through bishops and orthodoxy and through popes and Catholicism are not proven with any real certainty. And again, I said the greatest proof that what they have claimed regarding authority, the greatest proof against it, is what they have done with it. That's the greatest proof against it. All you got to do is just take a, a snapshot of the quick history and present look of all the orthodoxy, and you can see that their claims of authority have failed them relative to who Jesus and the apostles are. Now, a couple follow-ups from last week. First, someone commented that in the Talking to Mormons clip, which we just showed you one, that it, uh, one of the voice actors said, God would never let his church leave the earth. And then... Three minutes later on the show, I said, I don't think that the church today is necessarily immune to destruction. And the person pointed out, look at even on the show itself, there's a conflict between uh, the, the, the ministry they're promoting and McCraney when he was talking. For starters, this can be explained. But even if it can't be explained, let's say it's an absolute contradiction. It's great because it just shows you, it's another example that I can get along with ministries and what they have to say and with, that differ with me, and they can get along with me, and we're all trying to present our best stuff. And that is true. That's really the bottom, the bottom line to it. But the, the context of the cartoon clip was talking about um, speaking with Mormons who do not believe Jesus has returned and are waiting for him to come back and to take his church. And... The, the point of the cartoon was uh, the character was saying God would never let his church fall into apostasy, full apostasy, before Jesus comes and takes it back. That was the point. And I agree with that completely. If we're still waiting for Jesus to come and take his church, then his church has not fallen apart or the gates of hell have prevailed against it. However, I also believe that since Jesus has come back and taken his church bride, I was speaking to another part of his kingdom when I said, I'm not sure it can't be taken. And that's the body. I don't know if this world won't become so ripe with iniquity someday that godlessness will prevail and the last believer will have died. I don't know if, if that could happen. Uh, but that's all in the context of believing that Jesus has already taken his church bride. Also, uh, some have said that Jesus' return was impossible. They say it's impossible, and, the, and their, their justification for that was because we have the church brethren who, are, have, came, who have come along after Jerusalem was destroyed. 
and have created Catholicism and Orthodoxy and Protestantism. That's evidence that his church is still around and he hasn't come. The thinking's really ridiculous. But uh, I want to go and take some of the esteemed leaders of the faith, some from Orthodoxy, some of the Patristic Fathers, some more our age, and I want to read to you what they have said about Jesus' second coming, okay? Just before you think this is all made up by me. Um, Eusebius, the great church historian of the Patristic Fathers, 314 A.D., he says, talking about Matthew 23, where Jesus describes to the apostles what was uh, coming, he says, and all this prophecy of what would result from their insolence against Christ has been clearly proved to have taken place. He's talking about all of Jesus' words about the end there. He says, clearly proved to have taken place. That's Eusebius. All right. Athanasius, 345 AD, said, It is, in fact, a sign and notable proof of the coming of the Word, that's Jesus, that Jerusalem no longer stands. Athanasius says, Proof of the coming of the Word is in the fact that Jerusalem no longer stands. You know what he's saying there? Jesus came back in 70 AD, and Jerusalem no longer stands is proof of that. That's Athanasius, all right? Tertullian, 200 A.D. And so the times of the coming of Christ, the leader, must be inquired into, which we shall trace in Daniel, and, after computing them, shall prove him to have come, even on the ground of the times described. That is telling you what I am standing on. Tertullian said it. Your early patristic fathers that you trust so much in everything they say, they are telling you he came. You can't get around those. All right, Christosom, uh, in his book Liturgy, said, Remembering this saving commandment and all those things which came to pass for us. Did you get the line? You got it. Which came to pass for us. The cross, the grave, the resurrection on the third day, the ascension into heaven, the sitting down at the right hand, the second and glorious coming again, end quote. He said it. The second coming. Those are the things which came to pass. All right? Origin, 100 A.D. I challenge anyone, quote, I challenge anyone to prove my statement untrue if I say that the entire Jewish nation was destroyed less than one whole generation later on account of these sufferings which they inflicted upon Jesus. For it was, I believe, 42 years from the time when they crucified Jesus to the destruction of Jerusalem. That's one generation. That is re referring to the words in Matthew 23. How about Jonathan Edwards for a Protestant view, 1776? Jonathan Edwards, he wrote that famous sermon, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards, this is what he said. Tis evident that when Christ speaks of his coming, his being revealed, his coming in his kingdom or his kingdom coming, he has respect to his appearing in those great works of his power, justice, grace, which should be in the destruction of Jerusalem. That's Jonathan Edwards. 
And let me give you one that's more current. He recently died, but people hold him up as so important, and he is a great, very smart man, R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul said, The coming of Christ in A.D. 70 was a coming in judgment on the Jewish nation, indicating the end of the Jewish age and the fulfillment of, this is unfortunately a little caveat he threw in there, the fulfillment of a day of the Lord. Jesus really did come in judgment at that time, fulfilling his prophecy in the Olivet Discourse, end quote. So anybody who reads what Jesus said and described at his coming in Matthew 23, the Olivet Discourse, R.C. Sproul said he has already come and fulfilled it. Now when he said it's a, it's a fulfillment of the day of the Lord, he hedges there, meaning there was one then and he's saying there's going to be another one now. We have no biblical support for that, R.C. Sproul. That's just conjecture on your part in hopes that he's going to come back and, and do it again. So I'll lay out some scriptural supports next week that should cause every critic of this stance, of the fulfillment stance, to say either Jesus and his apostles were wrong, they have to say that, or they have to admit that he's returned. And if they admit that he returned, they have to ask themselves, why do I participate in orthodoxy, Protestantism, or restorationism? This week's topic relative to those three is sin. Sin. Now, uh, what on earth do these three camps have to say about sin? Uh, the answers, again, are stunning. And uh, see, religion exists because of sin, if you think about it. It exists because of sin. If sin is gotten rid of, religion is just more than of a camp of positive thinking, right? And doing good, you know, it's a social club. But religion exists because they insist that sin is still present and abiding on this earth. So let's step back to the apostolic age and let's look at the apostolic record, and it describes a day when the bride was under the governance of the apostles. We've talked about that. The apostles were governing the bride. In the apostolic record, we are presented with some information that's difficult to integrate on one hand, and the apostles wrote things relative to the final work of Christ, and that is doctrinal, so you have to take that, but then we also see what the apostles wrote to them then as a church bride in order to keep her protected, in order to keep them unified. So we have doctrinal issues that suggest one thing, and then we have practical issues that suggest another. And as you go through and read through it, and believe me, I am, I am tersing through, tersing through, I'm not sure that's correct. I am pursuing through these verses, and you can see that, the apostles were talking about one thing sometimes to them, and then they were talking doctrinally to everybody in a different way that was kind of abstracted from what the church needed to hear. So because men and women have decided to ignore the fact that Jesus promised and prophesied that he would return and take his bride so the gates of hell would not prevail against it, all three religious approaches and all those who fall under them speak and teach and talk about sin in a manner that tries to be consistent with what was written to them then in the church 
while ignoring the doctrinal stances. And it, it's a really convoluted kind of thing. They entirely missed the big picture. Remember, my friends, remember, the apostles' job was to oversee the church of that age until Jesus came back to take her. That was their job. So in their epistles and letters, they're telling them to do things that did not necessarily or does not necessarily apply to people thereafter. So they were dealing with incomprehensible tensions that came from all sides. The Greeks, Hellenization of the land, the Romans, the Jews, of course, the Gnostics, those 12 apostles being killed off, their job, keep the church together. You've got to do this, you've got to do that. So I want to give you an example. This is, I just want someone, just, just hear me plainly, all right? 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded under obedience, as saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church with church being the ecclesia, meaning the called out. It's a shame for a woman to speak in the gathering of the called out. Paul says it, all right? Now, those instructions were right, and they were perfect for that day and age to them then, in the bride, culturally, especially within Judaism, women were without many rights, and for them to suddenly pop up in the middle of a gathering of men and start piping into uh, issues, that was going to create a tension the bride didn't need, right? So Paul wrote that. But we also note that Paul wrote doctrinally in Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew or Greek, there's neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. Okay? So we have that doctrinal position, but we have him saying, women, shut your mouth in church. It's a shame for you to speak. You got to be able to tease those apart and understand why he would say that, but give the doctrinal position. Listen, if everybody is one in Christ in the church, why on earth would women need to be silent, right? Context, time. Not speaking was to them then for the safety of the bride. That they are one in Christ is to us now and forevermore. You see the difference? Additionally, Paul wrote to the church at Rome, and this is how he concludes that epistle. I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church which is at Trintria, Centria, that you may receive her in the Lord as doth become saints and may assist her in whatsoever matter she may have need of you, for she also became a leader, prostasis, which means a woman set over others. She became a leader of many and of myself. So we have on one hand again, shut up in church. But on the other hand, at the end of the letter to Rome, we have Paul saying, listen, go see uh, Phoebe and do whatever she says. She's a prostasis. She's a woman who's a leader of many, including myself. Now, how do we have that conflict? Because some was to the pride then, and some was the more liberal view that can exist 
in an age beyond that one. Additionally, isn't it interesting that the first human to witness the resurrected Lord, we covered this the other day in campus, was not a male. It was Mary Magdalene. And not only that, she is the first person commissioned by the Lord post-resurrection and, was, and Jesus sent her to go and tell and teach the apostles what they were supposed to do. Now, today we love saying, oh, the church is a gathering of two or three people. That's the church. Well, let me tell you something. Mary Magdalene went into a gathering of 12 apostles. Was that the church? Was she to keep silent in the church? Was it a shame for her to speak? No, no, no. What I'm talking about is the difference between what was necessary then and what is doctrinal and everlasting now. And if you don't have eyes to see that when you're reading the Bible, you're going to come down and side with Paul and you women shut up in the church, right? So what have the three main stances done just with this instance, right? The Protestants claiming to follow the Bible take Paul's words about being silent and some of them take it literally, and they don't let anybody who's female speak or teach in the church. And most of the restorationist groups do the same thing, unless they're uber-liberal, and then they just make up their own rules. They say, we follow the Bible, but you know that one, it's just such hypocrisy. If you don't have a way to stand on that, you either follow the Bible or you don't, right? If you say we've got to follow it, the women shouldn't be speaking in church. That's how you believe, not how I believe, right? You can say, well, we look at it contextually like you're doing. But that has to come only if there was an end of an age, of the apostolic age, you see. So there's the difference. What about the wisdom and insights of orthodoxy, who not only look to Scripture, but apparently look to divine leadership in their bishops to keep them on the right path, right? So simply put, Orthodoxy, Greek, Roman, uh, Russian, they preclude woman, women from the priesthood. And in this, we can see that the so-called benefit of following their leaders um, has failed them and kept them from abandoning cultural practices that should have been abandoned and from embracing biblical truths that should have been embraced. They've just clung to culture and, and, uh, and they've stuck with it. And that's why you don't have women involved in, those, uh, in, in Orthodoxy relative to speaking and teaching in church. Of course, Orthodoxy, like the Mormons, they justify their biases. They say, well, Orthodoxy was one of the first groups to let women have the right to do this or that. The Mormons, the Mormon church was the first group to have relief society. Of course, most of the relief society was filled with polygamous wives who didn't have any rights at all in the home, but nevertheless, everybody has their stupid stuff they justify their practices on. But bottom line, bottom line, orthodoxy has not benefited from their leadership and their authority that's been passed down for generations. They have stuck to the same misogynistic views that should have been done away with a long time ago, as evidenced by Jesus and Paul themselves. So... Let's not forget as a means to keep the bride united in one and free from infiltration and from corruption. The true apostles stroke, spoke straightly to them in those circumstances then. Uh, but they also gave us doctrinal positions that should be leading us now. So with the rescue and saving of uh, the bride in that day and age by Jesus as promised, the attempts to keep brick and mortar religion is completely anachronistic. 
And, you know, especially as it relates to sin, getting back to the topic. So, what are the generally established approaches to sin in these things? Let's start with the basics. All three groups believe that there is such a thing as sin today. All three groups will look at each other from the top down or, or uh, horizontally and point at each other and say, that's a sin. You're in sin, right? You need to repent of that sin, okay? And I say to some degree or another because there's a broad spectrum of views relative to sin. In fact, when we think about it, the reason these groups exist is because of sin, as I said earlier. So let's speak to sin within orthodoxy. Roman Catholicism, Greek, Russian, Orthodoxy. First of all, Catholics believe that people not only experience Adam's sin, but they are guilty of Adam's sin. Okay, understand that. That's the Catholics. Orthodoxy, Russian, Greek, others, believe that while all people bear the consequences for Adam's sin, they are not guilty of Adam's sin. That's the major difference within orthodoxy between the Catholics and Greek and Roman Orthodox, which I think is much more reasonable, the Orthodox view in my mind. However, orthodoxy does maintain that Adam's sin is hereditary, which is kind of an interesting twist, too. Sin is also seen differently in, in those uh, in orthodoxy. Roman Catholics see sin in two categories. Mortal sin, which means sins that will send you to hell. And venal sins, that means the things that will inhibit your life and growth as a Christian, but they won't send you to hell. They'll send you to purgatory, where if you die with venal sins on your charter, you'll go to purgatory, you'll pay for those, and you'll come out and go to heaven. Okay, That's the difference. Mortal sins in the Catholic Church, you go to hell and that's it, baby. You're done for. So, in other words, in Orthodoxy, uh, they don't believe in mortal and venal sins. They put all sin in one basket. And the way they kind of say it is, if it hasn't been repented of, it's a mortal sin. So, in some ways, Orthodoxy is even more hardcore than the Catholics. They say any sin that you commit that hasn't been repented of, and I got to add in the proper way, is a mortal sin. Or at least the Catholics will give you some sins that are not going to keep you out of heaven. They're the venal sins. You can commit them. Yeah, you'll spend some time in purgatory, but you get to go to heaven. And uh, because that was a recent development, Orthodoxy, Greek and, and Russian and others say, no, we don't buy into that at all. In Catholicism, there's an interesting situation, and it's a result of their belief in purgatory. Uh, which Orthodoxy does not embrace. The Orthodox uh, Greek and Ru Russian doesn't embrace that. The strange thing about Roman Catholicism view of sin is that if someone commits a mortal sin, it can lead to an eternity in hell if it's not repented of before death, right? Now, according to my friend, Catholic Father uh, Christopher, a mortal sin has to contain three things, if memory serves. It has to be serious. They call it grave. It has to be committed with full knowledge of how bad it is. And it must be deliberately committed. So, 
you're a faithful Catholic woman, and you know with full knowledge what the rules are, and you're really attracted to a guy, your hormones are raging, we're talking about a perfect storm here, you're fully aware that you should not have sex with this guy, but you do, deliberately knowing that it's serious, that you've committed it with the full knowledge that you shouldn't, and you did it deliberately, and on your drive home you crash. To the Catholic, you're in hell for eternity. Okay? That's a mortal sin. Now, if the woman goes and says, you know, I'm really attracted to this guy, but I know it's a bad sin, I'm not going to do it, and she goes to the 7-Eleven and she steals a Reese's peanut butter cup, and eats it and crashes her car and dies, she goes to purgatory. She pays for that Reese's peanut butter cup, probably by having hot cups attached to her body. Just kidding. And then she comes out and goes to heaven. Venal mortal sin. All right? So the destination is hell for the mortal sin, as we said before. Um, in, it might seem like the Catholics have a really messed up view of sin with mortal and venal sin, but when you think about it, orthodoxy is even worse. Here's why. Think about this. In orthodoxy, the woman, she says, no, I'm not going to sleep with this man. I've been a faithful orthodox Christian. I've gone to confession. I've stayed away from sin. I've repented of my sins as I come up. Dang it, I'm not, I really want this man, but I'm not going to sleep with him. And she goes to the 7-Eleven, and dang it, she's just ticked at how strict she's lived her life. So there's a, 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 a Hershey's kiss on the counter, and she takes it out of just rebellion, darn it. She's tired of being so good her whole life. She's sick to death of having to sacrifice everything. That guy was hot, dang it, and I'm mad. And how strict I've had to live. It hasn't paid off. And she gets in her car and she eats a stolen kiss and she crashes and she dies and she goes to hell forever for the stealing of the Hershey kiss, which was not repented of. It was purposeful and it was uh, not taken care of by confession through orthodoxy. This is how far sin goes within these groups. You wonder why they have people running to the places every week, you know, trying to see the, the spiritual leaders, etc. So that leads us to the next thing about orthodoxy, and then we'll move on to Protestantism, and that is orthodoxy, Roman Catholic, and the others say yes to confess. They say we like confession. And what that means is a sinner must confess to a priest in confession or to a spiritual father in orthodoxy, who's like a parish leader. And within orthodoxy, the way and frequency is dependent upon the, the church or the, or the parish that we're talking about. But within Catholicism and orthodoxy, confession is really important. It's vital. Orthodoxy calls confession of sin one of its holy mysteries. Confession is a holy mystery. Um, or it's a sacrament, confession. And through it, divine forgiveness of Christ is obtained. All right? So orthodoxy stresses that, listen, you're not confessing to a man. 
you're confessing to God in the presence of a spiritual leader. And, and it's stated in a prayer, they say, before the confession happens, that the spiritual leader is hearing the sin so that they can work with you on overcoming it. That's okay. All right. You got a little hands-on going. You get a guy in the room. The person's praying to God and confessing their sin. And the guy says, okay, you have problems with cutting off the ears of rabbits and using them in an improper way. I'll work with you. We'll talk every Wednesday. We'll follow up. I've had insight with this. And, you know, you, you, you get it all, all there, right? If a believer says, how come I can't just go to God directly with my rabbit cutting ear problem? They will say, because you can't be your own spiritual physician. If you had a disease, you certainly wouldn't go into the operating room, lay on the table, cut your gut open, try to remove the cancer, sew yourself back up, and consider yourself safe. The same thing, and if you think that you can go directly to God without the intermediation of one of our spiritual fathers, it's hubris, and it is self-determination, and it's a refusal to conform to the humility that's required of a true Christian. In other words, and in the face of Orthodoxy's view of authority and apostolic succession through their bishops, these intermediaries are for God serving as spiritual physicians, and, uh, you know, that's how they see it. All of these things we could expect from orthodoxy because in the end, the expressions of orthodoxy are all about maintenance of the soul, repentance, keeping the soul in a place so that when death comes, they're ready to go. And again, all this is tied to authority. Unfortunately, sin and the confession of it, if you really think about it, it leads often to shame it leads to shame that is not warranted by Scripture, guilt, what might be seen as perfecting the flesh through rituals and not by the Spirit. Additionally, it's really ingenious to take the most common occurrence in humanity, aside from using the restroom and breathing, sin, and to make that something you control in a person's life. I mean, that's really smart. It's ingenious. And I think if the church could control breathing, they would. But they can't. So they go to the next most ubiquitous thing in the human experience when we do things wrong. So while I personally have no issue with people wanting to confess to somebody or talk about their problem or get help, that's fine. I have a real problem with men inserting themselves between God and the individual. That is... I have such a problem with because that's what Jesus came and he tore that veil. That veil was torn down. There's no need for priests to go in before God for somebody any longer and offer up the blood. Jesus is the high priest. We go to him directly. So uh, restorationist churches typically hover closer to orthodoxy than to Protestantism. Um, they typically are about confession of sin sometimes even more stridently than orthodoxy. Uh, Mormonism, big on that. A lot of the so-called Christian cults, big on confession and having to repent in order to receive the blood. Um, you know, it's what led Martin Luther in the Protestant Reformation. He got to a point that he said, 
I am confessing day and night. I'm doing everything possible to get rid of my sin. And yet, how do I know? So that's why he nailed that letter at, on the door at Wittenberg, because he, that was one of the big things. All of this confession, all of this confession doesn't guarantee I haven't forgotten something. And then I'm going to be in trouble. So when I read Here I Stand by Roland Baton years ago, 20 years ago, it's the biography of Martin Luther, I really resonated to him because uh, you can't know your crimes are forgiven when you go to the Mormon church. So you're, a, you're, you're in their system. They, ought, they tell you you have to live holy lives. You can't live a holy life. You go back to the place that tells you you have to live a holy life for absolution, and they've got you in the system. And that is what Jesus came to get rid of, right? So uh, God knew that that's what religion would do. He, he knew it, and he knows that priesthoods and mortifications of the flesh, uh, and that's why when it comes to sin, you ready? God took care of it. He took care of it. He took care of all of it. He didn't just take care of some, not the really... Uh, easy ones, all of it, for everybody, everywhere, always, once and for all. Now, this is too radical for religions to hear. They can't accept that. Protestantism is a clusterfuck when it comes to sin. I mean, it's like a troop of bipolar cops trying to direct traffic. You got pointing this way and that way. You got, you got them saying, this is okay. You got them saying, that's not okay. You got people saying you can't drink, you can't smoke. You got pastors smoking and drinking. You've got all sorts. Of, you got hyper grace that's, that says sin away. Then you have others who are saying, you know, you can't do any sins at all. You can't have fellowship. It's unbelievable. So where orthodoxy is more inclined to list sins and to put them in a hierarchy sort of um, Unless you attend a Protestant megachurch where they really just care about your uh, showing up and, and paying money to them, they really, and they don't necessarily always talk about sin. Sin is really unique in the Protestant faith. Uh, the Protestants claim, though, that sin is sin. They say sin is sin, right? They're big on that. But then they, they, they pick and choose what they, how they treat each other. You know, within a Protestant church, you find out a girl has slept around. Let me tell you something. That, that youth group is going to not treat her as sin is sin. They're going to come down on her. You go in most Protestant churches, you know, and talk about homosexuality. That is a, that's a different kind of sin. That's a special kind of sin with them, right? So in other words, a, a practicing homosexual is like at the top of the heap in Protestantism of bad sin. Uh, worse than being an adulterer. But in the sins of a heterosexual, adultery is right at the top. And then fornication, and then, of course, pornography and all that comes with it. Sexual sins are right at, I mean, in all of it, sexual sins are like the big thing. That's the interesting thing, too. Sexual sins are like uh, Betelgeist, the star Betelgeist out there in the universe. And the sins that really mattered to Jesus, the ones that were in the heart, I mean, he didn't like sexual sin either. But when we're talking about meanness and, and being unkind and gossip and and all that stuff, sins of the heart, stinginess. You know, there's really not much attention paid to that. It's always about the sins of the flesh when it comes to uh, Protestantism and the way they, they see it. So here's the gig, and we'll wrap the, our time up. 
Hamartia, that is the Greek for sin. It means, you all know, you missed the mark. And let me tell you something. That is what humans do. We miss the mark. That's what we do. When, I think when, if we could put words in God's mouth, when he created humans, he would say, they will eat and drink, they will sleep, they will miss the mark. I think that's in the description of humans when, God, when it came to, to God, right? And, but God, so loving the world, he took care of that part. When are we going to get that? When are we going to accept it? And if he took care of it, it's done. I know no one wants to accept that, but that's how to see it. It's done. It's over. Realizing this, all Christians have to try to figure out what that means in their life. They have to figure out what that means, how that actually plays out. So I'm going to go to the board really quickly just to show you this broad spectrum of the way religions look at sin, and then we're going to come back and hit a really quick uh, thing we did earlier and then close the show. So religion strewn across these boxes here uh, on the uh, on the brutal legalist end of this uh, we have paid Jesus paid for sin but it's really hard to get the benefits of it <laughs> I mean you gotta really really grind it out to get the benefits of that that's a super legalistic system that's Mormonism that I grew up in you know if you did anything that was considered egregious, anything, it was super serious, and it was really hard to get the benefits from Jesus paying for those sins. You move in this way, I put Mormons here, Jesus paid for sin, but he didn't pay for all of them. And this is when, you know, in priesthood meeting, they talk about, well, he didn't pay for murder, that's for sure. Adultery, not sure on that one. Yeah, and so they have this hierarchy of sin. And then the, the popular Protestant view is sin has been paid for if you have faith and you repent. There's a condition to that happening for you, that the sin would be paid for for you. You have to have faith and repent. Then his shed blood would take care of you. And so it's really not much different than these because you're still on that cycle of trying to work out repentance and make sure you get Jesus' blood covering your sin. In the Protestant Calvary, it's Jesus paid for the sins of some. The rest of them are shot to hell. So he took a certain segment of people and paid for all of their sin. You'll find in Calvinism, many of them are very liberated. Those ones who believe they are elect, they are, they are often foul-mouthed. They are often rude. They're very liberated for the, from the fear of sin because they know it's been paid for in their mind, right? But it's only for some of them. And then if you go to Protestant Arminianism, it's Jesus paid for all sin, but people are too stubborn to accept it. So him paying for it all doesn't mean anything because people aren't going to accept it and have faith and repent and have it be applicable in their life. So those are kind of, that's kind of the spectrum of sin in the three categories. <coughs> you notice I have a final one on the end, and that was the one I just introduced to you, and that is it's paid. 
for all. And I want to wrap up. How much time do we have left? Ooh, running out. I want to just explain the concept to you quickly. The wages of sin is death. That is what sin creates in your life, death, right? And so prior to Jesus, everyone on earth, because of all sin, they died and they went to a place of death. They weren't being resurrected from that place. It was a place separated from God. We call it Sheol, also known as hell, the covered place. It was a place of death. The wages of sin is death. You with me on that? Just stay with me that, that far, okay? So, Romans 5.8 tells us, But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Do you know what that means? It means that while we were in our sin, not repenting, not changing, not doing anything about it, Christ died for us. Now, what does it mean that he died for us? And does it mean that he died for all of us or some of us? Let me read you another passage, John 2.2. 2. And he is the expiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So while the whole world was yet sinning and in sin, Christ died for us. The wages of sin is death. Who died? Christ died. For who? For us. The wages of sin is death. He paid for those sins. What sins? All sins. Who sins? Everybody's. The whole world. So he paid for the sin. There is no more wages of sin being death. How do we know that? Because since Christ, all are resurrected. Prior to Christ, everybody stayed in the grave. They stayed in the covering place. They stayed in hell or Sheol, separated from God. But with Christ, him dying, taking the whole world, he died as mankind, not for mankind, Christ died as mankind for all the sin. He's buried in the grave. Substitutionary death takes the whole world with him. Okay? And because of that, then he's raised to new life. Guess what? Now, the whole world is going to be resurrected. That's why the grave doesn't hold us anymore. That's why hell is over with. Because Christ has had the victory over Satan, death, and hell. And he did that 2,000 years ago with his substitutionary death. So when you look at the TV and there is a gay pride parade in San Francisco and there's men dancing with oxen dressed like Chinese women, it's paid for. It's done. Now, we're not talking about walking with Christ. We're not talking about Christianity. We're not talking about anything. We're talking about reconciliation here. That's what Christ did. He paid for it all. And so God is no, not angry. God isn't looking at everybody and saying, oh, you sinned here, you sinned. How, can you, how could they be sinning here and sinning there when Jesus paid for it? Paid the price for it. 
He can't. It's done. We never see that. 2 Corinthians 5.14, it says, As one has died for all, therefore all have died. That's that idea. As one has died for all, Jesus, all have died. The substitutionary death through Christ. We've paid the wages of sin. So therefore, we're all going to be resurrected. That is a biblical fact. All will be. All right? And it's so hard for people to accept. We are no longer dead in sin with Adam. We are dead with him. Why? He took the, all of humanity and paid for their sin. He took us down into the grave, paid for the sin. All of us dead in him. He is the captain of all faith. He is the victor. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord and Savior. Why? Because every knee and every person will know he paid for their sin. Wiping the slate clean. Everyone. Once and for all. So we are dead in him, not dead in sin. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1, 20, 22. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, I say, whether they be in earth or in heaven, and you, when you were alienated enemies in your minds by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. That's what he did. John 2, 2, 1 John 2, 2 says, all for the sins of the whole world. So if he did that, why do we insist as Christians to continue to go in the revolving door of confession, continue to point out everybody's sin and everything else when it's been taken care of? Now, I understand doing wrong things. And I understand consequences, and I understand all of that. But I am talking about in God's eyes. I'm talking about God's son paid for sin. If God's eyes aren't looking to sin, then our eyes shouldn't be looking to sin either. Right? All right. So, no exceptions. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing its trespasses unto it, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now, just because, understand this, that sin has been paid for, doesn't mean that we are children of God and everyone's going to go and live with God after this life. Now we're talking about a faith thing, and that's going to come later. But tonight we're only talking about sin. And so the first step in looking at these three groups is to help them understand through Scripture that sin is over. And when we look at each other and we look at others as people who have had their sins paid for, and we share that message with people, not if you repent your sins are taken care of, but that your sins are paid for, the goodness of God will lead people to repentance. His goodness, that's Romans, will lead them to repentance. But when you threaten them and say, unless you repent, those sins you're committing will be on your tally. Like that, all that old school stuff that we have read about, uh, anachronistically and out of context, 
we missed the mark of the great news. So I want to end the show tonight by showing a clip. These boys were not coached in any way. I had no idea what they would say. They're my grandsons. I have never talked to them about this subject. They're very open books. They will talk about anything with their Bjorn is my name to them. And uh, my grandsons, I wanted to teach them about justice, about consequences, and really just talking about sin relative to three ways we see it in our life. And I wanted to share with them the good news and see how it would come out. So let's take a look. Okay, well, thank you so much for being on the show tonight with me, uh, everybody. These are my grandsons who I love with all my heart. We have Laser and we have Samson, and you can cough if you need to. They have coughs uh, because it's winter time, and that, that's okay. I'm really grateful that you came on. And I have asthma. And you have asthma, that's right. And uh, they're going to speak <coughs> openly with us right now about some things. <coughs> So, uh, boys, I want to talk to you about some things, and you can just answer and say whatever you want, okay? Okay. All right. We know that people do good things sometimes, don't we? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a good thing that you've done? Uh, well, um, I share with Samson sometimes. You share. And I share with him because I just shared crack eyes with him. You shared crackers with crack him? Guys. Sometimes I help him, uh, play, uh, help him finish like a level on my iPad. Lots of good things. And I help him find the level sometimes because I, I'm just like, oh, Dad is. Oh, and well, I excellent. Find it for him. Okay. So, and when you <sighs> do something that's good, does your papa and your mama are they really happy when you do? Yes. Yeah. Happy. yeah. My mama is really happy. Really yeah. happy. Okay. Now we know that people do good things, but sometimes people do bad, bad things. things. Okay. Yeah. So can you think of one bad thing maybe that you've done? Um, I flattened laser. You do what? I flattened laser. Uh, I bragged one time. You bragged? Okay. About what? <laughs> I don't know. Who knows what well, it is? Well, I threatened uh, Lazar. You threatened every him? Time, like, I, every time Lazar tries to run away from me, I get a sword. You get a sword? Like, like a plastic that. sword. Oh. And I am like that. You threaten him? Yeah. And what do you threaten to do? Hit him? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, and then, and then when something bad happens, then Mama and Papa aren't very happy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. I'm going to teach you two words. And you probably know what one of these words are. But I'm going to teach you two. The first word is justice. Yeah. I know that. Do you, what is justice? Do you know? It's when you save someone and stuff. Okay. What else do you think justice is? Any other thoughts? Um, sometimes you're not like cover someone's being stuff. brave or something. Okay. You have well, to be brave? Well, when you're undercover, I think. When you're undercover? Uh-huh. Okay. Well, justice also means, this is what it means, if something bad happens to you, you want Justice. Let me explain. Let's say you're in your room and you're making a, a castle, and Laser comes in and he knocks the castle over. Accidentally? No, on purpose. Okay, he does it on purpose. You're going to want what's called justice. You're going to say, what are you going to say if that happens? I'm going to say this build itself. Are you going to get mad? Yeah, and they say build itself. It's all your fault, Lisa, and it's, build it. It's your fault. And will you go to your mama, and what will you say? Um, uh, tell her that Lisa, I 
knocked my castle down. Uh huh. And when you tell her that that laser knocked your castle down, you're saying that because you want justice. Mm. You want your mama to do something. To you. <coughs> what do you want your mama to do if laser knocked your castle I'm gonna down? I'm punish him <coughs> down it and shut him in the bedroom like he always does with like she always does with me. Exactly. Like, shut you in the bedroom, right? Because that's called a consequence. So those two words, justice and consequence. Ooh, can I tell you what a consequence is? Yes. It's making a choice. If you do that, something my bad will happen. Something, you know, like I'm gonna do this, and something could happen. Like I'm gonna hit my brother. Then it, maybe he's gonna tell on me, and I get to go in the bedroom. That's and a consequence. That's a consequence. Very good. So <coughs> let's flip it around. Let's say that you are eating a cookie. I, that your mama gives you a cookie and you're just about to bite into it and Samson with his fast hands grabs it and sticks it in his mouth and eats it. You're going to want justice. justice. And you'll run to your mama and you'll say, Mama, what will you say? I will say, could you give him a good punish so I can get him in the bedroom? He needs consequences, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so you understand justice yeah. and you understand consequences. Okay, I'm going to go to the board for a minute, and I just want to talk to you really quickly about three things in our lives where we have to talk about justice and consequences, okay? okay. So look at the board, and I'll explain it, okay? First place is in our home. Right now, in your home. This is your home, and there's your papa, and there's your mama, and here is, here is Laser, and here is Samson. Okay? And when something goes bad and you want justice, who, comes. Who, not yet, we're not going to talk about that. What happens in your own home? What happens when you want justice? Who, who gives you justice? Mom and Papa. That's right. And do they also give you the consequences? Um, yeah. Yeah. Do they say, okay, Samson, you did something bad, you have to go in your room. Laser, you did something bad, you have to have a toy taken away, right? Yeah. Okay. So that's just in your home, okay? Now what happens, this is the world. What happens in the world? Sometimes if you do something bad, you can go to jail. Okay, uh -huh. police car. Yeah, and then, uh, and then, grab you, yeah. and they might put you in jail. Okay, so in the world, if you, if, let's just say that somebody in the world steals your car, okay? Steals your car. Do you want justice? Yeah. What, do you call the police? Yeah. Yes. Do you want, what do you want to happen to the person um, who stole like, your car? Lock him in jail. Yeah, actually shoot. No, shoot no, him. No, 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 lock him in jail. Okay, but he might break out. No. Okay, do you want That's him to, too so it's okay if you want him to oh. be shot. So you want him to go to jail and maybe you want him to be shot? Yeah, okay. so he can never come back. And so he can never come back and get you. Okay, so that's justice and consequence, well, maybe right? Maybe it is good because what if he goes to heaven, then he turns happy and he believes God. Dude, <laughs> whole new thought, right? Oh yeah. So, but in this world, do you know that if you like, if you steal something, if you go to the store and you steal something, mm -hmm. what are, what is justice? Um, paying him back. The police. Like. like like, um, uh, making the police make him go in jail. Okay, so you know that in your life, if you do, so, if you break the law, that there's going to be a consequence, right? Yeah. And when you break the rules in your home, there will be a consequence, right? Yeah. Well, guess what? Now let's talk about the whole world and all the people on it. 
And guess what? God knows that everybody on it, that guy's standing in the ocean. God knows that everybody on it does good things and, and bad, bad things, things. right? Mm -hmm. And when you do something bad, do you want to know what I'm trying to ask you? God knows. He knows, and what does he do if you do something bad? He forgives you. You don't know, and he forgives you, right? Why does he forgive you? Because he's God, and he's a good person. Yes, he's God, and he's a good person? Oh, yeah. Let me tell you one quick story, and we're going to finish, okay? Okay. This is what we teach that God did. That God said, I know that Laser and Bjorn and Mormor... Is that what you taught him? What's that? I didn't hear him, but I read what he says in the Bible, and so I kind of learn about what he would say. And it says in there that I know all of my, all of my creations are going to do bad things sometimes. I know that. And I'm, I'm not going to punish them for every bad thing. In fact, I'm going to do one thing. You know what he did? What? He had his son come, and his son was put to death on a cross. He was put to death a long, long time ago. He died when he was on a cross. And he died for the things that you do wrong, and you do wrong, and I do wrong, and Mama, and more, more, and Seth, and Wendy, and everything. Everything you've ever done wrong, you know what? He died for. His name is Jesus. Why did he die? He died because they put him to death. Why did they put It's a long story, but just understand this. That because he died, he paid the justice and the consequence for everything we do wrong. Do you still understand? Mm -hmm. Oh, he I think God died by a staff. No, 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 Jesus. Oh. Jesus. All the sins that we do, things we do wrong were on his son. So when you die, guess what God does? What? Um, he loves you. He's forgiven you. Yeah. For everything. All of it is okay. So it's different with heaven than it is in the world. In the world, the police are trying to get you and put you in jail. And sometimes at home, you're trying to get justice for your brother and you're trying to get consequences. But with heaven, the thing I'm trying to tell you and to share with you is that God has already taken care of all of those things that we do wrong. So he did that because his son. Now let me ask you one last question and then we're done. What do you think of God for having done that for you? I think he's really nice, and I, I think he's a really good person. Can you go to him with any problem? No. I mean, no. wait. Can you talk, talk to him about anything? Oh, yeah. yeah. Of course. Does he get mad at you? No. No, he doesn't get mad at all, does he? Yeah. He loves you completely. Can you go to him and say, I did this and I did that or I want to do this and I think I should do this bad thing. Does God want to hear that? Yeah. He's like your papa and he your mom. He forgives you. He forgives automatically. Can I go? Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I just want to say thank you very much. Thank you for being on the show. Yeah. They take over the show. And we'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.